Welcome to The Right Podcast, a podcast providing innovative and inspirational dental education to dentists, specialists, and their teams worldwide. Each fortnight, we deliver relevant content covering procedures, educational opportunities, and interviews with rock stars from the dental world. As we explore the successes and failures of dentistry, learn practical tips and expert advice to help you become a better dental professional. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program. This is, once again, Mike Melkers coming to you from Hanover, New Hampshire. And I've had such a fun time doing so many podcasts this week, and I always seem to be introducing my guests, uh, our guests, as a dear friend and and colleague or mentor. But this time, it really hits true. Uh, Lee Brady, Dr. Leanne Brady, and I have been friends longer than either of us probably care to admit. But I'd really like to uh, welcome her. And Lee, thanks for joining us today. Oh my gosh, Mike. Thanks for having me. I think this is is fantastic, number one, and I think it's going to be fun, number two. Well, if it takes a pandemic for me to get you on the on the phone for an hour so that we can catch up, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Absolutely. Well, actually, what's what's funny to me is the fact that I have spent more time on the phone, Zoom, um, everything else lately. I mean, that's all I've done for about 10 days now is is this kind of stuff. I mean, I wish I had owned Zoom stock. No. <laughs> Because I it's, can't even imagine. It's going to be, you know, when all this is over, it's going to be like the end of summer camp. And we're all going to, we're all going to miss our friends. We're going to have to go back to work because I'm talking to people. I, I think I'm hitting three to four continents easily. N- not more than that, I don't think. But every every day I'm talking to someone all over the world. And, yeah. you know, and that's that's just the way things have changed. So, you know, with change, and since we're in the absolute midst of change, you are uh, the poster woman for change. So when we, when we look at these things and we look at the times and we look at your unique history, you have always been a thriver, a survivor, and an influencer. And you've always maintained your core throughout all of that. Can you share your, your thoughts or observations or even some magical insight into that? Well, yeah, that's interesting. And thank you, by the way, that was a heck of a compliment. Um, I, you know, I actually will tell you one thing that's funny is my, my preference for change isn't always a compliment or something people like about me, especially people who work with me. I always warn them. I'm like, sometimes I might change things simply because I get bored. So if I do that and it was actually working, you should just point out that maybe we shouldn't change this one right now. Um, but that ability to be um, fluid, right? To be able to be adaptive and maybe have a slightly higher ambiguity tolerance, uh, I think just has come from lots and lots of life experience and having to do that. I kind of think that it's almost like exercise. If you do it enough, you get better at it. It gets easier. And I've had a lot of uh, life opportunities that I've either purposely stepped into that totally upset my apple cart and changed my life or that um, the universe did for me, and I had to manage that. So, um, and part of that, I think probably the most important piece of all that that you mentioned was the piece about your core. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whatever you want to call that, whether that's your mission, your vision, your philosophy, you know, around the Institute, we talk about the word philosophy a lot. Um, You know, whatever your um, grounding beliefs are, 
that really is the piece for me that always holds true. And when I think about my dental practice right now, I will tell you that there have been moments in the last two weeks that I, I've been like, oh my God, what the heck? The sky is falling. What are we going to do? How are we going to come through this? And what I always go back to is uh, something that I learned from a dear friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Gary DeWitt, who's also one of your close personal friends. And that is... I miss, I miss uh, Gary. Yeah. And that is 51% healthcare, 49% business. Yep. And I have reminded myself of that um, DeWoodism, as we like to call them, um, so many times in the last two weeks, because when, the, when it's felt tough or frustrating or the decision has felt difficult, I go to 51% healthcare, 49% business. If, if I've got to make the decision as a healthcare provider and not disregard my business, my business has to be 49%, not 40, not 30, 49%. But yeah. I have to make that decision as a healthcare provider, what's the right thing to do? And, and that's guided me. And that really, in a lot of ways, is also super similar to what's guided me through the decisions I've had to make at the Panky Institute for the last two weeks, which is our foundation is individualized, relationship-based. Absolutely. Teach, right? We teach dentists to be individualized and relationship-based. Just to give the listeners a little bit a little bit of history on on Lee. So Lee, you're the current uh, CEO and president of the Panky Institute. Prior right. to that, you were at Spear Education. And what what role did you have there? Uh, my title was Executive VP of Clinical Education. And before that, it, you were you were back at the Panky Institute. Correct as clinical director. And that, and that's where that's where we met. Killed the Easter Bunny, all that good stuff. But that's a, that's a that's another story we'll get to later. I wanted to bring that up just because we ha we have listeners all over the world, and I just wanted before we started to get into some of the what could be perceived as inside stories, kind of give them a little heads up on where you've been. But back to you with the with the what you were chatting about. Yeah. So you know, as I've thought about how we're going to manage things at the institute through this crisis. Again, it's relationship-based and individualized. And so every member of our team knows um, as you're getting calls or emails, text, whatever it is from people in our Panky community and or new people, whoever it is, the first thing you always do is say, um, what's the right way to answer this question? What's the right way to handle this circumstance so that I'm, I'm managing it based on this individual's unique needs and concerns in a way that... Um, secures the future of our relationship. And if we so, that, business comes, it comes with it, Mike, the business piece comes with it. So as everything changes and goes completely upside down, the strongest place we go to is our core. A absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's one thing I think I, I've known and seen in you is no matter where I've known you or no matter where I've seen you in your life and in the transition, you're always the same person. And while, let, you know, as David Bowie says, life may change me, but I can't change time or, or whatever the quote is, you've carried that core through all of your challenges. Thank you. And again, that's, uh, you know, I, I, I hear that as an impressive compliment because it's hard to do. And I'm not, it's not always easy. I promise you. There are, you know, stress. It's not? Really? Oh, come <laughs> on. Stress and things in our lives can push us uh, into doing things, saying things, behaving in ways that we look at ourselves and go, wait a minute, what, you know, 
what was I thinking or who was I in that moment? Um, and, you know, I, I guess piece for me that I learned, and this was a really, really big life lesson for me because going slow, taking deep breaths and being patient, if you know me, you know, is not hardwired into who I am. Um, but reminding myself to step back, take a deep breath and allow myself, whatever the space is, it could be 10 seconds in my office. It could be a 10 second pause between patient A and patient B so that I can just refocus, let go of what I was just doing or thinking and, and say, what's my intention in the next moment or the next interaction with a human being or in mm -hmm. business decisions. What I use that five or 10 seconds for is exactly that, just to kind of ground myself. What's my intention? What's driving me right now? Well, can I, can I jump in there? And that, and that's, I love the self-awareness that you have. And, and, you know, you and I have d different personalities, but we've always got along well. And we you were talking about, you know, referring to kind of personality types there, which I am a fan and not a fan of, because if you throw four drivers in the room, one's going to be more of a driver. One's going to be more of an expressive, but what we can accept is everybody's different and everybody needs to be treated different, differently. And we're different people from, day to day and time to time, even if it's the coronavirus or if it's just everyday life. So right. could you share some thoughts and tips on helping us interact better with our teams and our families and our colleagues? Because the one thing that is different and even happens in, in normal life is this is a higher stress environment. And we will, again, have high-stress environments. They'll just be relative to whatever's going on that day. So maybe maybe share your thoughts, and, and uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say on that. Yeah, you know, it's again, I'll go back to something that, for me, has been foundational learning and that I learned at the Panky Institute, which is two really important pieces. And it starts with know yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And as you said, we are not all the same. We don't, we don't think the same. We don't talk the same. We don't react the same. We have, I mean, there... You know, no matter how you look at it and you could do, you know, social styles, Myers-Briggs, all of that. You could also just do family of origin, life experiences. You know, no two human beings are exactly the same. And that's actually probably the most important awareness piece you can get, right? Is that everybody is different. Everybody has a different perspective. But in order for me to be able to understand someone else, I first have to understand myself, and I can only understand and appreciate other people to the level that I invest in getting to know and appreciate myself. Those two things build on each other. And spending time doing that. And in a team, helping your team members know that and get to know each other. So I will tell you with my team, we've done social styles as a team. We've done Myers-Briggs. I had our dear friend Mary Osborne in and we did a two-day uh, workshop with the team and we went through, everybody had taken a Myers-Briggs ahead of time. And not as a, not as a, an excuse for your behavior. That's one of the things that I don't like about personality styles and inventories and all of this stuff is that sometimes we hold it up as a, oh, I'm a driver. That's just how I am. Or I'm an extrovert. That's just how oh, I yeah. am. Yep, right? Yep, yep. right? And, it, and, but, but if you can use it simply to appreciate, to actually appreciate that different people have different ways they speak or approach things or think about things. And if you can see it as a tool, 
And instead of thinking about it as something you have to just accept about another person, flip that around and say, how is that a tool? Like, how does it benefit our entire team that we happen to have one person who really takes their time and thinks about something and processes it internally, goes through all of it, and then comes up with a reflective perspective? Mm-hmm. And how is it beneficial for us to have people on our team who can respond in the moment? Yep, yep. And when do we leverage each other's strengths so that we work together as a group more effectively? So I really think about that as two things. It's a tool to be more effective in group relationships, but it also allows us the ability to give other people grace to be who they are. I, you know, I've, I've really seen that this last week and, and whether, again, whether this is the, the virus or whether this is any crisis is in some groups we can perceive that, oh, we need that person and not who, that who has to be leading or that person. But, you know, right now the traditional driver and analytic and someone who's a slow thinker, actually, those three types can really be in conflict sometimes, but in, a, in times of crisis, it's great to have someone who is first up on their feet and the other person that looks in all the details but can't actually make a decision. And then balanced with the person that can step back and look at the big picture. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's exactly what I was trying to refer to. You said it much more eloquently is how do we take all those different strengths and skills and, and use them when they are most appropriate and know that about the people that we work with. So that are you we, saying case in point that we just did that? Yeah, we just did that. <laughs> exactly. So the other thing that you said that, that really struck me and honestly, it, it, I don't know what do you call it? Gobsmacked upside the forehead is you said something and I've heard it said before, but it didn't hit me till this time. Know yourself. I mean, I have, I have the, the, I have the uh, Aristotle's cross literally sitting right in front of me. I look at that every day. But that's the, goes to another quote, first seek to understand, then be understood. Now that Stephen Coveyism, I always think about seek to understand someone else. I really never thought that the first step could be to seek to understand yourself, not others. Well, you know, one of the things that that I've actually been, that just, it has warmed my heart and it has filled me up with uh, positive energy over the last two weeks is how dentistry has come together, right? The community and the support and, you know, people just basically saying, what can I do to help? And not in exchange for any monetary reward, but literally just to help and just to support each other. Um, it, it has impressed me beyond what I can put into words. Absolutely. And I, com- I, I completely agree on that. And when you say that, Lee, you know, it makes me think about the community of learning that I've, ex- that I've experienced over the years. And, you know, being, being your, your stalker fanboy of all the great community of learning that I've experienced with you, whether it's uh, at the Institute or at Spear or uh, Leadership and Legacy, or actually the first time I met the trio. Uh, yeah. And if, if people don't know who the trio, and you hear, if you've heard my lecture, you know the names, Mary, Lee, and Joan. And I saw uh, Lee and Mary and Joan present. Tell me about, tell me about how, the, how the three of you have changed each other's teaching perspective. 
Well, yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I guess I, I'll see if I can speak for Mary and Joan. I know I can speak for myself. Um, of course. And, and I think much like you, I mean, meeting each of them and I actually, uh, believe it or not, met them pretty much simultaneously. It happened to be a team program that was uh, taught by the Panky Institute for years. And I, I was newly there. So it was early mm-hmm. in 2005 and they were both teaching that team program. And it was little did I know at the time how life-changing it was going to be to have um, those two women in my life as mentors and ultimately as very, very dear friends. And, and then, you know, to be able to get to teach together and it isn't, it, and we are, we do have very different perspectives that have been together <laughs> styles as, as you pointed out. Um, I like to joke that uh, they, uh, they keep me from going dental because, you know, I do have that dentist brain and sometimes I can flip right into the technical and, um, and forget the, the people part of it or the facilitative part of it. Mm-hmm. But I also think that that influences them because having the, having the realistic understanding of how we do every day have to balance that technical, all of those technical scientific decisions with the people decisions, mm-hmm. right? You know, that is, I think, the biggest challenge. I think for a lot of us, we learn, we learn a ton of technical dentistry. And then we do think of have- behavioral, but... As you and I both have talked about, integrating them is actually where the rubber meets the road. Do you remember what year that was that the you were at that team program? Um, I think it was two thousand and five. Two thousand and five. Yeah. Oh, that's the two thousand and five. That's that's actually where the, the first teaching event that I had with you as attending as one of your attendees was November two thousand five at at TUI at the institute. So. 2005, and it's you're at a team program. Now, were you at the Institute then, or was that before you were on board? No, I was there. I, I, I had just started. I want to say that program was in the spring, like maybe March or April, and I had joined the Institute full-time in January. Okay. So when you came to that program, can you remember who you were at that time and how that program changed you? Um. You know, I would actually say the team program for me might not have been necessarily specifically impactful because I don't think I was in the program as much, although Mary and Joan were on Key Biscayne, so I got to meet them. Okay. Um, I would tell you a marker for me um, from an educational and development perspective was, um, I want to say that same year, September of that same year, Mm -hmm. I flew out to Seattle and I took... um, Mary's seminar that I want to say she called the language of listening at the time. Um, she hasn't given that program, that workshop in a long time, but I flew to Seattle. It was at the Edgewater Hotel, which if you're from Seattle, Washington, the Edgewater is one of my favorite places on the planet. The Beatles and fishing out of the windows from the hotel room. <laughs> exactly. Um, but to sit in that room and spend the two days or three days and honestly, not talk about technical dentistry. That really was the first time I truly learned staying in the question and listening and the concept of co-discovery. Um, I got to spend those couple of days with Mary. That you know that, that there's so many things about that weekend. That was the first weekend I ever met Kevin Quishan. Um, You know, so there's lots of things. 
So just to just to interject again uh, for the listeners, because it, it, it sounds like we're talking about Madonna and Kobe and, and things like that. And if you're not in the circle, so so Mary, uh, Mary Osborne and Joan Undershus. So Joan is, and I'll just say this here since she's not listening, I call her the Yoda of dentistry because I mean, she, she knows how to do everything that you can't even imagine that needs to be done. Uh, she's historically, she's a clinical psychologist, but she's been a rock climber, high mountain rescue. She's owned a multi-million dollar company. And Mary Osborne, I like to refer to her as a recovering hygienist. She does not like the term practice uh, consultant, uh, but she is the wellspring of communication that you've probably heard in my lectures and if you take uh, Mary, Joan, and Lee and roll them all together, I've, I've definitely been the ventriloquist dummy that you've seen a lot of the lessons that they've taught me that I've passed on to so many of you. So back to the Edgewater. Yeah. So, I mean, I, and I think about when you say, who was I, Mike, I mean, at that point in my professional career, my personal development, um, I didn't know anything about the stuff that we talk about all the time, facilitation, co-discovery, listening, relationship-based dentistry. Those were all really, really new concepts to me. Um, and you have to think, I only, I only took my first Panky course three years before that in the fall. You know? oh so, my. This, so, so this was fledgling stuff for me. And you know what I knew was um, I was attracted to it. You know, it's, I, I know you've had this experience that you sit in a room and you learn something and you don't even begin to understand it, but it just uh -huh. resonates with you and you go, this fits for me. I've got to learn more about this. <laughs> you know, it was, it was funny. I think I was at E4, uh, the fourth level of Panky, and uh, I had never met Mary. And I had heard this word and this person referred to Mary, but I didn't actually get that that was who was helping teach E4. And I went up to her and I, and, uh, or she went up to me and she said, hi, I, I said, and I said, hi, I'm Mike. And she said, hi, I'm Mary. And, and she said, Michael, what's, what's been, what's been impactful? What's, what's been new for you since E3? I said, Mary, I learned this new thing. And she goes, really, what was that? And I go, it's called staying in the question. And she goes, oh, and she goes, oh my, she goes, tell me more about that. And I said, well, it's this concept that when someone um, tells you something, you, you ask him a question about it. It's so cool. And she goes, Mike, I got to stop you because I'm having too much fun. And she said, I'm that Mary. And I turned just absolutely beat bright red. She doesn't remember the story. I've told her about it. But I remember, I remember I was in front of Master's Hall in between the podium and the front row. And I just stuck my foot in a complimentary fashion straight down my throat, never to return. But I, I remember that exact feeling of how that felt that I was so just in, it was like an adrenaline rush, an endorphin rush, and a brain explosion all at the same time. That, that, that's one of those, what I call just a knee buckling educational experience that shifts your perspective that you can't even look back and remember how you didn't do that before. So Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you know, and here's the thing. I, you know, one of the things you and I share in common is I love clinical dentistry. Mm -hmm. I like to learn clinical dentistry. I like to do clinical dentistry. I like to teach clinical dentistry. 
Right? Absolutely. And and so I and I've invested, you know, I can't I don't even I haven't counted the hours that I've spent in dental continuing education for years because it's just it's just, you know, it's an endless supply of things. There's always something new to learn. But one of the greatest frustrations for me in a 33-year career as a practicing dentist was the inability to really implement or really use the clinical things I had learned or the clinical skills that I thought I I had Mm -hmm. in real time with my patients in my practice. And this conversation about building relationships and co-discovery and developing your, um, your, I'll call it a communication skill, even though we both know that it's more about listening than it is about talking. Of course. Right. That, that was the thing that shifted dentistry for me. It went, it had dentistry go from being just a fun technical pursuit to being my life's passion. It was the thing that flipped the switch from it being frustrating because I never could understand why some patients said yes and some patients said no. And it just, it felt like rolling the dice every time you presented a treatment plan. We probably didn't own enough articulators back then. That, that was probably it. Exactly. See, yeah, you, know, yeah. More, you need more articulators. You got to take more courses because once you're more brilliant, they will just sense that mm-hmm. amazingness within you and say yes. But luckily we found communication before we became that amazing. <laughs> exactly. So, and that was the thing. And I couldn't have said this to you in 2005, but there was just a way that sitting there, I went, this is the thing that I've been missing. And it fits for me. And so I really want to learn a lot about it. And so Mm -hmm. I went from the first half of my dental career, spending all my CE hours just on technical dentistry, to now the second chapter of my dental career. I think I probably spend equal amounts of hours in both the the technical and the non-technical sides of dentistry. And and learning the non-technical piece for me has had dentistry be more successful and more fulfilling, more fun. Uh, in addition to being more fulfilling from a standpoint of, I actually, I love wa- helping patients walk through figuring out what they want for their dental health. Absolutely. I, I love that process. And I love the gift of being able to partner with them in that process. I want to kind of put some perspective to that because you're talking about how long I wasn't going to go there, but you did. So I can, (laughs) (laughs) you talked about uh, 33 years in clinical practice. I am coming up on it. Yep. And 2005 was 15 years ago. Yep. So you were 17 slash 18 years into clinical practice before you actually were exposed to that little nugget of knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't actually start at the Pinky Institute. I took my first class at the Institute in September of 2002. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, some people know this, other people don't necessarily know my history. I'd been back in the practice of dentistry at that point, literally just for about a year and a half. I had actually stopped practicing for almost three full years before that because I just really didn't want to be a dentist. You couldn't have made me be a dentist um, the, and I went back to practicing because I had no choice. I had to support my family. Wow. And that is one of the similarities you and I both have is, uh, you know, you're, you've been in uh, 
clinical practice a few years more than me, but both of us at some point hung up the handpiece with no intention of coming back. Yep. Yeah. I definitely hit the burnout wall in a pretty hard way. Yeah. Mine, mine was two and a half years out of school. And I, it, it shocked me that that happened that fast. But why, why don't you, just because you, you brought it up again, why don't you just give us a thumbnail of, of your career, where you graduated from, what kind of career, what kind of practice you went into and where, where you progressed from there? So I went to the University of Florida College of Dentistry. So I grew up in Florida, went to school in Florida. For those of you who um, know, yes, I am a Gator, got my undergrad and my dental degree from the University of Florida. And, um, and you know, that my actual first job out of dental school was in public health. I actually worked in a public health clinic for about six months, didn't last long, and uh, then became an associate, was an associate in, I think, three or four different practices in the first five years. And then mm-hmm. I bought my first practice, which actually was in Atlanta, Georgia. So I actually practiced um, off Lawrenceville Highway um, in a suburb of Atlanta for a which, number su- of Which years. suburb? Um, so the, the suburb is called Lawrenceville. So okay. Right. And so the, and then, you know, when I think about my career there, I mean, I bought that practice thinking if I just owned my own practice and made my own decisions, I would like it more. And it mm-hmm. turned out I didn't actually like it anymore. And now I had nobody else to blame. So that really got frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> right? doesn't, doesn't, doesn't that just suck? <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, uh-oh, I don't, I don't like it. And it's my fault now. Um, Oops. You know, and I literally, in March of 1999, I uh, went home and I told my husband, I'm done. I'm not going back. And a month later, I sold my dental practice. And, you know, by that point, um, Kelly and I had been married. I was pregnant with our third child. Um, he was out of school. So I figured I'm, I'm staying home for a while and then I'll figure things out. And, you know, if my husband has an MBA and a degree in finance, and if you remember anything about 1999, 2000, that's right. Oh when the internet, yeah, the internet went balloon burst and all of that. And so several years later and his being two jobs later, I think, I finally had to pick up a phone and call around and see if I could find a job as a dentist just so we could feed our three kids. And we moved back to Florida, moved in with my parents, and I got a, a, a job as an associate in a practice that actually a classmate of mine from dental school practiced in. That's how I found that job. And it was a totally different experience. It was like nothing. Was that Bob's practice? So Bob Deason, yep. And so I didn't, and, and it was so different than anything I had ever experienced. And a piece of it was for me that Bob had a philosophy of care. Like Bob knew how he wanted to practice. He was a really savvy business person and Mm -hmm. he understood, he knew himself. He knew how he wanted to practice. And he also knew enough about that to be able to say to us, how do you want to practice? Well, I didn't have an answer to that question. I didn't know how to answer that question. And that, and he was the person who, um, who basically, he paid for me to go take what at the time was C1, we now call it E1 at the Panky Institute. So he mm-hmm. put me in my first Panky course and he put me in my first Spear course and started me on the, on the path that now is the second half of my career. Well, that's interesting. Now, and I knew the story, but one of the things that always stands out, Bob's practice, and, and I, I, I've met Bob and I've known him for, I knew him a long time ago, 
but he had a large managed care component to his practice, didn't he? he and did. the reason I, the reason I want to bring this up is I love the way all these stories are unwinding. And you're looking at and the listeners are listening to two people that have worked in public health care. We've worked in corporate, you know, corporate dentistry. We've both quit dentistry and we've both become uh, international lecturers. So there is literally no barrier that people can't overcome if they want to. Absolutely. And, and I also think that, you know, there's a misconception that relationship-based dental practice and insurance are antithetical. Like you can't put those two things together in the same practice or that relationship-based care doesn't work in a group practice. Well, I can promise you that's not true. LD Pankey practiced with seven other people when he retired. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had a large group practice before it was even the norm or it was a common thing that happened. And so, you know, you can practice dentistry any way you want to. I am an avid believer of you can practice any way you want to. You can have anything you want to have. Now, for everything you get, there's something you have to give. Mm -hmm. And you literally just need to sit down and say, if this is where I want to go, if this is what I want to create, how do I get from here to there? And that's the, that's the process of I might have to give something up right now or I might have to give something up to get there and you make a decision about whether it's worth it. And that, that's the thing I didn't know the first 15 years in practice. I didn't get that. I get to choose how I practice dentistry. I get to choose what my relationship with dentistry looks like. And I actually think it's one of the biggest gifts of any profession. I mean, I can't name five other professions where you have absolute freedom to figure out how you express your chosen profession. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's easy. And I didn't say that no. you can just, and I'm not saying you can snap your fingers and have it. You're going to have to work to get it, but you can get it. Practice on your own, practice in a group, take insurance, don't take insurance, start at 7 a.m. and end at three or start at three and end at 10 p.m. I mean, literally you can do any of those things. And there's very, very few professions that have that kind of flexibility. But the first thing you have to do is you have to know you have those choices and then you have to embrace those choices. And we also talked about the problem with choice is if I get to choose and I'm unhappy, it's up to me. Yeah. And one of the, one of the other thing that that goes with that and I've with what you're talking about is it can exist in a lot of different ways and we can choose to do that and others can choose to do that. And one of the, one of the things that really stood out for me, and I think it was maybe, maybe in June when we were down at the Kia and I can't remember if it was at faculty enhancement or E1, but there was something that you said that resonated with me that said, we need to stop fighting. We need to stop fighting about how things are done. And that, and I've always seen you as a leader, but that was, that was, that's when I saw you as a high tier really high tier visionary leader that made a, a statement that we have to stop fighting with each other. And you, at the time we were talking about occlusion, but it could be about how people practice, whether they choose to accept insurance and, uh, and the decisions they make. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing when we think about how we approach things 
And I, you know, one of the things I know about myself, so I'll only talk about myself, is one of the things that prompts me to be most judgmental about somebody else or how somebody else does it is that I'm actually insecure about how I'm doing it or what I just chose. I find that I, I, I say that I'm usually mad at a, at a, a previous or future version of me. Yeah, and that's, and so I, I, and I'll stop someone and I'll say that I'll catch that when I'm, you know, we all have those moments where we're not the best at the podium where you, you, you start to snap at somebody and I'll just stop myself. And as you say, speak your truth or judgment. And I'll say, I'll say, Pete, I'm sorry. I wasn't yelling at you. It looked like I was, but who I was really angry at was a previous version of me. So if you don't mind that I had that small conversation with my past version, it wasn't anything about what you did or said. It's about something I did a long time ago that I'm still upset about. Correct. Or even about something right now that you're in conflict with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's, and it's, it's a, it's a challenging thing that I work on all the time. And I think it's kind of our life's work as, as human beings to be able to accept the fact that um, we can be who we are and somebody else can be who they are. And they're both okay. As Joan would say, it's one's not good or bad or right or wrong. It's the both end. We can both be exactly where we're supposed to be, even if our practices look totally different, even if the choices about our practices look totally different. And even if it's the person practicing right next door to you, like it's easier to justify somebody else's practice style if they're five states away. Because <laughs> you've used the geographic excuse. Well, you know, that's not how we do it in Arizona or that's not how we do it in New Hampshire. Um, but, you know, when the person who's literally in the door next door to you in your office complex has a totally different practice than you do in my, in my toughest moments when I am my worst self, the things that go through my head is, you know, should I be practicing like that? Am I making a bad business decision? Have I made, you know, an inappropriate? And part of the way we defend ourselves as human beings is to go, no, I'm right, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't, I mean, isn't that how we're trained? We're trained, we're trained in comp first by competition. Before we're trained about dentistry, we're tra trained about competition. Who has their hand up first? who answers fastest, whether it's the right answer or not. And then we have to defend that our answers were right. And we carry that over. And it, yeah, if I could ask for a magic bullet, what are, when, when in your, I see you shaking your head in, in, in agreement, what are some <laughs> tips that you, that you have? Because just realizing that that's an issue for all of us doesn't make it easy to address. What, what kind of, what kind of advice can you give when, when we realize we're doing that? I'm going to have to think about that one, Mike. I will, will tell you what I do when it goes through my brain is, you know, and I use a lot of, um, I guess you'd call them internal systems or questions that I ask myself because those questions prompt me to shift how I'm thinking. And one of the ways that I do that is I ask myself, what are the risks and benefits? I have a, it's a personal belief that um, almost every situation, because I hate to say 100%, but has risks and benefits. This is how I think about dental treatment plans. There are no right treatment plans and wrong treatment plans. 
for every specific dental situation, what I know is if I lock 50 dentists in a room and to come up with treatment plans, I might get 50 different treatment plans. Every one of those treatment plans has risks and benefits. Absolutely. And then that person being the patient has to be the person who chooses which set of risks and benefits feels best for them, meets their goals the best. And I also look at business decisions that way. Every business decision has a certain set of risks and benefits. So mm-hmm. whenever I find myself in that, oh, I could do this or I could do that, or I'm doing A and somebody else is doing B and I start to get like, wait a minute, maybe they're doing it right. I go back to Lee, what are the risks and benefits of the way you're doing it? And that always, that always grounds me in. And the reason I chose it the way I am is because that benefit profile made sense. And, you know, if I'm not doing it, it's because the risks were too high. And what I don't know for that other person is what their risk and benefit profile is. That's the piece that we have to think about is I'm not them. It's I don't have their specific set of circumstances. I can't ever make their choice. They could even tell me their risks and benefits, and I might not make the same choice because, again, as we said, everybody's different. We're not the same people, and we don't have the same life circumstances. You know, the, I think the the emergency shutoff that I have, and I didn't know what it was, that's why I wanted to ask you, is when I look at this and you say, what are the risks and benefits of engaging in this conversation? I think my, my, my dear friend Allie back in Spokane and, and one of her favorite sayings, not my barrel, not my monkeys. <laughs> I, I don't have to go win that game. And I think stepping back is, you know, pick your, pick your battles is, is one of them and that you can't change everything. Going to the, to the risk and benefits is, and that's, that's something that, I, that I've really distilled from, from your teaching and, and from Gary's teaching is the, the risks, the benefits are attached to each treatment process. But the treatment plan is really the treatment purpose, and the treatment purpose isn't our decision, because Correct. that's the pa- that's the patient's goal, and, and the, the clarity the clarity of that. Now I'll be doing a program on that on that coming up, but the the clarity in that is not having to have the answers, but just having to have uh, resources to provide options. I guess I would say. Yeah, I think you and I look at it the same way. I see my role in this with my patients is first um, to help the patient um, be fully versed in their own current present condition so that they have ownership over what's going on with their dental health. Mm -hmm. And then my second role is to help them understand the possibilities that dentistry has to offer Mm -hmm. along with the risks and benefits. And Mm -hmm. their job is to choose. Their job is to choose. And, you know, that, and by the way, when I say that, sometimes people, people interpret that to mean that I'm going to do whatever they choose that those that's don't collapse those distinctions. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Right. They get to choose what's best for them. And then if the treatment they're choosing is outside my comfort zone as a, as a provider, then I get to make that choice. Right. So we both Mm. maintain the freedom of choice. And it's, an, and it's an interesting thing that shifts, it shifts how you feel about treatment planning or about even doing comp exams for patients. If the, if the goal of this is for me to come up with the quote unquote right treatment plan, that's when I used to sit in my office 
with the mounted models, with the x-rays, with the photographs. There was never enough diagnostic information. I, I always felt like there was some piece of diagnostic information missing because I never thought I could come up with the quote unquote right treatment plan. When I realized that for any given dental situation, there's multiple treatment possibilities. Mm -hmm. And my job is to come up with what those possibilities are based on what I know about the patient. And then together we develop a plan because that's what they chose to do. It made that whole process of sitting in my office not only easier, but it actually made it more fun. You know, that sitting in your own office thing, it, that, I remember those days and it just drove me mental before I had this realization. It's like you're having an argument with yourself you know, and, and you get no additional input. And after a while, you just have to get frustrated uh, and, and make one. And then you still don't feel it's right. And, and I, I think that the quote that helped me through that and uh, Gary DeWood quote, Gary DeWoodism, so there should really be a little book. If you're having a hard time making a decision, you're asking the wrong person. You have to ask someone else. And whether that person is the patient or a specialist or a team member that saw the, the exam going on. And with the exam, the other thing that stood out to me, it took me so many years to understand this. I remember uh, when, when we had the C1 manual and, I, and the very back page or one of the last pages before you, know, you ordered some stuff from the bookstore was yeah. tips and suggestions from uh, visiting faculty. And it was like, oh, do some models. Oh, take some photographs. I'm like, and then the one, one that I remember that really stood out, it said, a comprehensive exam may take 10 years. And I said, oh my Jesus Christ. I'm like, I'm slow, but I'm not that slow. <laughs> and I, what and I realized, code do you use for that? <laughs> I realized that what they, were, what they were talking about was that it's a journey. And right. it, you don't, and I remember the analogy I told, I, I don't even know if I should bring that one up. I'll have to think on that one. But it's not like, yeah, okay, fine, I'll go there. So it's not like you get you get your first date, you get your first kiss, you get uh, engaged, married, and have kids all at the first appointment. You don't have that on your first date. Right. Is things that are relationship-based take time and process to go through all that. A absolutely. And, you know, one of the things we're lucky about in dentistry is that we actually do have the gift of the lifetime of our relationship with that patient. We see our patients routinely over and over again, and we also have um, the ability to increase the amount of times that we've seen, we see patients so that we can extend the conversation. So yeah, I think we, we unfortunately all learned a process in dental school that was exam, diagnose, plan, and present. And, and you think it's four very, very neat little boxes. Mm -hmm. And my experience in dentistry is, yeah, not so much. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. And that, that works me and that surprises me even, even now when you know, people look at you and I, at, when we're at the podium and they think, oh, they have all the answers and they have everything all together. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like, I'm still trying to figure this out on a daily basis. But I set aside a certain amount of time and, you know, right or wrong, and it'll freak people out if I tell them that I set aside two hours for a new patient exam. That's not something I might suggest for everyone. And certainly not if you're uh, 
early on in your career and you just have no money and you have to get a lot of people in. But I find that sometimes even when I have that two hours, I might be done in a new patient exam in 20 minutes. And sometimes two hours isn't enough. Correct. Because we, And the ones that always get me is you get the x-rays beforehand and they have no restorations and you're like, uh, Sherelle, we'll be done in about, we'll be done in about 30 minutes on this one. And you know, you're at two hours and you haven't even started doing uh, any of the clinical charting. And then you have one that yeah. come in, they look like they got hit by a dental bomb and you're like, oh my God, we're going to need more time. And you're like done in, an, you're like done in 40 minutes because they've already been around the block and it's easy is we're different people every day and, and our patients are. Absolutely. And systems, systems really don't fit human beings because there's always going to be people who are outside of whatever your system is. So no matter what your system is, if your system is everybody comes in for a one hour new patient exam or everybody comes in for a two hour new patient exam or everybody does 30 minutes in hygiene, it doesn't matter what your system is. There's going to be a certain percentage of people that walk through the door of your practice who that system seems perfect and you feel very validated about your system. And then there's going to be a whole lot of human beings who don't fit that system. Again, that idea of ambiguity tolerance. And how are you going to be able to be present for that person and do what's correct for that individual based on that relationship? And can you learn to flex your systems for the people? instead of trying to put the people into your system. Mm -hmm. That, I think that reflects not just for our patients, but for our team and for our family members and also for our attendees, whether, you know, they're, they're here on, on RIPE or at the Panky Institute. I remember, was it November? I think we had our last advanced uh, occlusion and case planning in my office. And we had an international group of very young dentists, and they weren't exposed to a lot of what people refer to as the hippie, touchy-feely stuff. And I, I kept referring to Bob Barkley, and, and they didn't know who he was. And I said, well, let me go get the textbook. And I got Bob's book, which I finally found on Amazon a few years ago. And I go, let me, let's just see how smart Bob is. And I took it, and I thumbed this several hundred-page book without looking, and I went like that, and I pointed to the paragraph on the upper right, and it said, and I'm paraphrasing, that people need to learn and process information at their own desired rate, not ours. Because if we drag them along before they're ready, they will either be uncomfortable or made to feel stupid and may move away from the process. And I closed the book and I talked to the class and I thought, what a brilliant quote. I have been looking since November to find that page in that book. Because <laughs> I haven't heard you or Joan or, or, or Mary refer to that quote, but I told Mary about it the other day and I, I, that's Janine's job during this downtime. I'm like, find this quote, it's on the right page, second paragraph from the top, right. maybe about halfway or three quarters of the way in. Yep, it's, it's, like that, it's like that mystery that can't be solved. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. So um, I think I've heard something very similar from my friend, Martha Rich, who's in Portland, Oregon, mm -hmm. except attributed to Avram King. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, because I, I understand the chronology and the ages, if that's something that Avram actually learned from Bob. Because, you know, people never misquote people or use quotes from other people that weren't actually said by those people. I'm rolling no, my eyes. Never, looking that, at, no, that, no, that, no, we don't, we don't do that. No, no. Yeah. 
like, well, you know how it works, right? The first time you say it, you have to give the person credit by name. The second time you say it, you say a friend. And then the third time you own it outright. <laughs> uh, I, that, that works me. It does. <laughs> it, uh, it's because I know they took it from someone else, but uh, I always, it's such gifts that are given to us, uh, gifts from you and gifts from other people. And I know we lose track of that. and We can't give a bibliography uh, of everything we use, but uh, wow, what, what, a, what an amazing, what an amazing journey. I'm debating whether to cut here because we're almost at an hour or we could tie this up by going into how we uh, use that in attendees and students or you think this is a good place to cut it? You know what? I think either one would work, Mike. So follow your Well, how about, how, about we, how about we have you back and do that? Okay. I think that's okay, fair. Okay. So, so, so let me uh, read. So that part can be edited out. And uh, you know what? Heck, we'll go there. Okay. Three. You know, Lee, when, when I think about that and I think about, you know, talking about some of the missteps that I've made and I've seen other uh, people make, the, the same process that we talk about with our team or our patients, we were talking about, you were talking about our patients a lot. How do you see that as it applies to dental learning? And I guess I would be specific since we're right now we're on lockdown orders. How do we facilitate that in a community like ripe how do we how do we allow that freedom to occur in an online learning community you know that's a great question and i think that's the that's the place for me that i'm putting most of my creative thought processes right now for the next foreseeable future is mm -hmm. i know what you've done and what we do at the panky institute uh, when we focus on small group learning so small group, high faculty interaction, we really, the whole purpose of that, the thing that's different is it's individualized, it's relationship-based. We get to know everybody. We understand where they're at right now, what's working in your practice right now, what are you hoping to learn? I, I For me, that's always the kind of education that was most impactful. And it's mm -hmm. also the kind of education that I enjoy teaching or facilitating most. Yeah. You know, there's things that you get out of a big group 400 person lecture. It's very different that when you're in a room with 12 people or eight people and you build that community and those relationships. How do we take that asynchronous? Right? How do we create that same high touch relationship based individualized approach and do it asynchronously? And I think that's been a big question. That's honestly been the question that had no answer that has stalled Panky from taking classes online for a really long time while other people are doing it. Because we mm -hmm. think of this medium as a way to deliver content or didactic information, mm -hmm. but not as a way to build relationship. Well, I will tell you that um, Monday of this week, we did one of our Panky webinars and we actually did it where we had like, I think there were seven or eight of us that were panelists. And so we all had our video cameras on and we had a conversation and yes, mm -hmm. we did present some content information, but it, would be, it became a dialogue and I saw a possibility I'd never seen before using technology. Mm -hmm. The other piece that I saw was how active the chat box was 
I'd never seen that. I do webinars on Zoom all the time. And it's usually like radio silence other than us because we're talking to ourselves on our computer. Yeah, I well, know. You're like, you're like, tap, you're like, tap, tap, tap. Is, is the microphone working? Right. Is, is anyone the there? Is anyone there? Um, and, and, and yet on the webinars we've done this week, the chat box has been blowing up. And there's a piece of me that goes, wait a minute, the whole conversation that's happening in the chat box has nothing to do with what Kelly's talking about or what Bill Gregg was talking about. Pay attention, you people. But then the other- <laughs> just, like, just like a regular class. Right. But then the other piece of me went, no, they're having the conversation that they need to have right now. Right. Mm-hmm. They're supporting each other. And so, you know, I really do think that um, those of us who have spent so much time um, developing this idea of small group, high touch education, we Mm -hmm. are the people who are capable of doing it and doing it over technology. We just can't let the technology be a mental barrier. We can't do it as a, oh, that's not the same. And that's, and it's been, that's, I think that's been the conversation is, it's not going to be the same. It'll never be the same. Well, we know that it's possible now. Now we just have to put our creative energy into really figuring out the magic, the secret sauce of building relationship and just doing it virtually. Well, I think that's the, that's the shoe, uh, shoe salesman in Africa then, right? Is, is, oh, you can't do that. That's never been done. Don't even bother. But you look at it and it's like, wow, what an amazing opportunity that this has really never been done well. And one thing I would, I would say in that regard, because I love learning from you and with you, is I would love to see some symbiosis with that, with the ripe environment, ripe community, because you have thousands and tens of thousands, over 70,000 uh, dentists that I think could really, really benefit from Panky's teaching, your teaching, the philosophy. And the thing that I love about ripe that ha- shares that Panky philosophy, it's a community of safety mm-hmm. and heavily moderated for people having proper manners and yes. having their own place at their own level at their own time. So I would, I would, I would love to see you be more involved in that at, at whatever level you care to be and, uh, and bring your friends and we'll, we'll all have a cookout online. <laughs> Awesome. I absolutely. Anytime. I mean, you know, the, the, the more the merrier, the bigger, the better. Um, you know, anytime communities can come together, it's great. Cool. And Lee, thank you so much for coming together with me today. That's, uh, that wraps up our hour. Uh, as always, you and I would go on for three or four hours. The wine would pop, the gin and tonics would come out. And uh, maybe later we can have a virtual cocktail party. But thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's great. Cool. Excellent. So that was a lot of fun. And all the listeners, thank you for stopping by today. We'll see you next time for the next podcast here on The Right Podcast. Take care and signing off from Hanover, New Hampshire. This is Mike Malkers. Thanks for joining us this week on The Right Podcast. We've teamed up with mentors from around the world to offer you a growing library of high-quality online educational lecture recordings and resources. Visit our Academy website, www.restoringexcellence.com.au forward slash academy and become a premium member today. Become better at dentistry and be sure to tune in in two weeks' time for our next episode of The Ripe Podcast.